Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you'll find several speaker feeds with over 400 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would like now to introduce our speaker for tonight, Kim. Hi, everybody. I'm Kim, and I'm a compulsive overeater and a grateful member of Overeaters Anonymous. Hi, Kim. And um, you know, when I walked in tonight, first Mickey greeted me, then I got upstairs, and a couple of ladies greeted me. And then I came in the room, and Aaron greeted me. And I thought, oh, my God, I feel so welcome. And I thought, of course I do. I'm an Overeaters Anonymous. And the level of unconditional love, support, acceptance, and, and just the way that people lift me up in this program is unlike anything I've ever experienced in my life. So thank you for that gift. And welcome to the newcomers, and um, congratulations on the chips. And, um, and I'm, I'm really honored and grateful to be here tonight. Um, and at first, you know, of course my ego kicked in when, when you said podcast. I'm like, oh, you're recording this. Damn, it better be good. You know, and, and then I hear Robin say, that she got her abstinence through listening to this podcast and it just it like touched my heart and humbled me so much because this place is is magic to me I tried to stop compulsively overeating for 43 years and couldn't do it and in the room with your love and support and and through the 12 steps I've been able to do that my my abstinence date is November 13th of 2000 um, I've given away about 75 pounds for my top weight and 65 in program and I thought I came here to lose weight, and I had no idea that the weight I needed to lose was on my heart and my soul, not just my body. So I had a lot of work to do when I got here. Um, here, uh, This is just like 10 years of evidence from the crime scene. I am a hardcore yo-yo dieter. You know, I would gain and lose 50, 60, 80 pounds at a time. You know, people would see me, and they'd either be like, Oh, my God, Kim, you look great. Or they'd be like, Oh, my God. Oh, I mean, it's good to see you. You know, because when you when you gain 60 or 70 pounds in six months, people are a little shocked and amazed when they see you again. And um, the irony of my compulsive overeating is that I... I got sober 10 years before I ever took a look at my relationship with food. And I'm really grateful to Bill and Bob for the 12 steps. And I'm really grateful for my sobriety in that program because I never would have had the courage to come here and deal with the food thing had I not already had recovery in that program. So for everyone that food is is your first foray at recovery, kudos to you. You're braver than me. But the truth is, is that food is my first addiction. It's my most hardcore addiction. And it's the last one I was willing to take a look at and give up because it was my best friend, my lover, my comfort, my joy, my everything, my entire life. And and I know now that, that I have a disease. Like, I didn't want to admit that compulsive overeating is a disease. But it's the exact same disease of addiction that, affl- that afflicts me with, with alcohol, with drugs, with male attention, with the cigarettes I used to smoke down to the filter, with the credit cards I used to, you know, put cruises and clothes I couldn't afford on. It's the exact same chemical reaction. You know, it says in the doctor's opinion that I'm bodily and mentally different from others, and I am. I mean, there are certain foods that if I consume them, the obsession and the craving is immediate, and I can't stop. So the, the biggest reason that I'm grateful for my recovery in the other program when I got here is, 
is that I already knew what my drugs of choice were that I needed to put on my abstinence list. And, um, you know, sugar was my best friend my entire life. And um, my mom says I was actually even an overeater as an infant. I was a premature baby, and I don't know if that has something to do with it, but she said when she would feed me, she would physically have to take bottles of formula away from me because I would keep eating until she stopped me and that totally makes sense to me today like I was a compulsive overeater from the get-go but as a child I I probably had social anxiety disorder and had panic attacks and things and so food my comfort was always right there and um, and sugar was my thing like I look back at my childhood and it's all about sugar it's like Everyone else went to the swimming pool to see their friends, and I went to the swimming pool to go to the concession stand and decide which treat I was going to have that day. And other people were excited to get their allowance so they could save it for a toy or camp or something they really wanted to do. And I was on my bike so fast driving to 7-Eleven to see how many pieces of penny and nickel candy I could get in one bag that your head would spin. And, um, you know... My grandmother that I see now was a compulsive overeater, too. And in my family, food was definitely a source of comfort. Like, you know, it was all about, oh, I love you. I baked you a cake. Oh, I love you. Look what I made you. Oh, I love you. If you love me, you're going to have another serving. And um, so food, food was a big deal with my grandma and with my family, and especially with me. And, um, you know, I was a chubby little kid. My tribe is German, and we're of the flat-ass pot-belly variety, like everybody in my family, like little skinny bird legs, no hiney, and just like the the little Buddha belly. And I can remember from a very young age, like having that belly, like you can see pictures of me as a little girl, and, and my belly was poking out over my bikini, which is really funny to me now that I had one on. But, um, and... But no one ever made fun of me as a little kid. Like, I know people that were really tortured and bullied and ridiculed about their weight as children. And I don't remember that as a small child. I just remember a lot of love. Um, Except my dad. I don't know if you all ate over, over emotional things, but my dad is one of those emotionally unavailable guys that points out everything that you do wrong and never really gives you kudos for anything you do right. So I ate over that a lot, too. And dating him for half my life, you know, dating men like him for half my life didn't really help that scenario either, that emotionally unavailable. So I always felt less than, which I think is a big part of my disease of compulsive overeating. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not skinny enough. And if you know who I really am inside, you're going to throw me away. That is the core of my disease of compulsive overeating. And it's really taken a lot of work on the steps in this program to realize that that's where it all centers. My whole life I thought that I just needed to get thin. My whole life I thought I just had to figure out how to eat and what to eat. And and today what I eat is three meals a day with two optional snacks. I've noticed that, that my snacks got really sexy and important, and I wasn't really hungry when I was eating them, so I try to just eat snacks when I'm hungry now, which is a big change, and sometimes it pisses me off. But... Um, my, my abstinence foods, I don't eat any kind of recreational sugar at all, and I don't eat chips and crackers. Like anything that comes in a box or a bag that I can get to the bottom of the box or the bag and be like, oh, my God, where did that go? There was like a whole, what? What's this orange dust on my fingers? Like I, I had no idea how much unconscious eating I did my entire life. Like there were a lot of times that it was all sexy and fun, and I got excited about going to nice restaurants and eating here. and 
but even more so as my disease progressed, I don't even remember eating a lot of what I ate. It's like, I mean, I was there on the couch, and then the bags were gone. And um, sugar, I get so high so fast on sugar, and, and it drops me like a brick about three hours later, and I crave more, the obsession kicks in, and, and I get really sad. Like, I didn't know normal people didn't get sad when their food was gone. Do you ever go out to eat and be like, oh, no, it's all gone. Like, normal people don't do that. Normal people know that they're going to have another meal someday. But me, I'm like, oh, it's, it's gone. It's over. And I'm still that way. But, um, you know, once, once since in the four and a half years that I've been abstinent, it was since I've been abstinent, I let someone else order my coffee for me. And, and she... I said sugar-free, and she didn't get sugar-free, and I, I drank about a third of it before I realized, like, before I realized it wasn't sugar-free, and, like, I felt that rush of warmth, and my cheeks got flushed, and I got all high, and my heart was racing, and, like, so help me God, 45 minutes later, I'm calling my boss, like, I'm so sorry I didn't make that vodka you asked me to make the other day, and I'm so sorry that I didn't, and he's like, what are you even talking about? I was insane 45 minutes after accidentally ingesting a little bit of sugar. So I think that was God's way of reminding me, like, hello, Trixie, you're still addicted and you can't have this ever. And I also don't eat fake desserts and fake stuff and fake frozenness. I want the real thing. That's like a near beer to me. I don't want to know duels. I want a bottle of vodka. And I don't want <laughs> sugar-free fluffy stuff that is supposed to be like ice cream. I want the real deal. And I don't kid myself to think that when I get in those slippery spaces that, that I can't end up relapsing. I'm grateful that relapse has not been my, you know, part of my story up to this point. But I, I really came in fully surrendered. I came in knowing that the 12, step, the 12 steps of recovery work. And I came in willing, willing to take direction and, and do what was asked of me in this program. Um, I got a sponsor right away, and, and she is a lovely, wonderful woman, and she, um, she was just really kind and loving and never pushed me, and now my sponsor's a little more direct with me, like, well, how's that working for you, you know, and, and I like that, that's working for me today, but I'm just grateful to be abstinent because I don't have to do all of the insane things I did when I was out there. I mean, like I said, I was a yo-yo dieter. I... I gained and lost weight repeatedly. I, well, I didn't even realize that bulimia was part of my story until I got to program because I was an exercise bulimic. I mean, normal people don't go to the gym for three or four or five hours and then reward themselves with food, you know? And normal people, like at Weight Watchers, I was at goal weight five times at Weight Watchers, five times, and each time I would go and celebrate with a big, huge gorge of a meal. And... Um, on those photos, you can see that bodybuilding picture. I looked like that for 10 minutes. I did um, this Body for Life body transformation competition, and I lost like 38 pounds in 12 weeks and got those pictures taken and, you know, muscle cramps, insanity. When I had those pictures taken, I talked to my bodybuilder friends and, like, dehydrated myself, and I was eating boiled chicken and boiled broccoli, like, gagging it down. It was horrible, and I was such a, a crazy biatch on wheels that most people didn't want to be around me then. But about 10 minutes after those pictures were taken, I, I had all my binge foods around me, and I gained back 18 pounds in two weeks. 
Like, I am a hardcore compulsive overeater. And, and I didn't realize how sick I was when I got here. The way I got here was, was the gig was finally up for me. I, um, I was celebrating 10 years in the other program. They had a huge party for me. There were 100 people that loved me all around me. They flew my mom in from Kansas City and surprised me. I mean, it was at my sponsor's house. It was the most beautiful thing. And all I could think was, stop hugging me and cut the cake. Cut the cake. I mean, and it's the first time I realized, I mean, I really, I was enraged that people were, like, trying to talk to me and hug me and, and not cut my cake. And it's the first time that it clicked in my head. It clicked in my head, you're still a junkie, you're still an addict, and you're still actively in your disease. And I don't mean to discount my my program, you know, in the other program, because that recovery was crucial for me to getting to where I am today. But I couldn't really know who I am and really get honest with myself in the way I needed to to do this work until I put down my alcoholic foods. When I'm high on food, I'm still buzzing and checked out and, and numb. Like, the reason I overeat is to not have to feel my feelings. I never learned how to deal with emotions like a normal person. It's like, oh, I'm anxious. I better eat something. Oh, that makes me angry. I better eat something. Oh, I'm sad. I better eat something. Oh, I'm elated. I better eat something. Like, it was any emotion I would eat over. And so when I first got to program, it was so humbling. You know, I was proud of my 10 years in the other program, and I got here and to say I'm a brand newcomer and I don't know anything and I desperately need your help and I'm terrified was a huge surrender, and, and I'm so grateful that I made it. Um, but I didn't have to do it by myself. Like, no matter what I'm going through in my life, someone else in Overeaters Anonymous has been there and done that. And, and even my friends in the other program don't understand compulsive overeating. I've had those people say, well, you can have just one. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And, but I, I don't have to wait for other people to get it anymore either. I wanted my family to understand. I wanted my friends to understand. You all understand. You all are all of the love, support, and understanding I need when it comes to compulsive overeating. And so when I got here, you know, the first step was, was obvious and actually pretty easy to admit that I was powerless over food and that my life was unmanageable. I mean, you can see from 2009 to 2010, I gained 60 or 70 pounds again in a year. And um, so to admit that, that, that food in my life was unmanageable was pretty easy. And I already knew that God could relieve me of anything I was willing to turn over to him. But my whole recovery in the other program, I kept saying, Oh, yeah, God, please keep me from overeating. Please don't let me binge. I didn't mean it once. For 10 years, I said it, and I never meant it once. I was hanging on to my right to eat whatever I wanted, like like my little blankie. And um, so when I got here and finally admitted I was insane around food and, and asked God for help, of course God was there to help. And I'm not saying it was easy in the beginning because it was not easy in the beginning. I, I detoxed off sugar like a heroin addict. My joints ached. My armpits were sweaty. My hands were trembling, racing thoughts, agitation. I mean, I was crazy. And I was the exact same way when I gave up coffee about a year and a half ago. I, um, I got a job job interview call, and I wouldn't answer the phone. I was like, I haven't had my coffee yet. I haven't had my coffee. I can't answer the phone. I can't talk to them. I haven't had coffee. And I'm like, oh, here we go. So the road gets a little more narrow. 
and that's the beauty of, of um, the program is I can I can reach a new surrender and a new level of honesty with myself anytime I want to. It's a whole different ball game of honesty in Overeaters Anonymous because it's not like you drink or you don't drink. It's like you have to decide and admit what the alcoholic foods are. Like I had to admit that, and there have been some, you know, that I've had to take a look at since my original abstinence. It's like, is that getting a little too sexy? Is it getting a little too exciting? You know, am I thinking about it all day? It's like, well, I can, I can have one serving. Well, yeah, but did you think about it for 12 hours before you had it? You know, and it's not just about the the physical craving; it's about the mental obsession. Like, to have been free of food obsession and have a clear mind and be connected with other people emotionally and spiritually is such an amazing thing that when I start getting on the hamster wheel again, I I don't want to be there. And it doesn't mean I'm always willing to surrender immediately, but eventually I get there. And um, my inventory in Overeaters Anonymous was eye-opening. You know, I thought, I've been working the steps for 10 years. You know, what am I going to learn? I stopped harming other people working the steps in another program. I stopped harming myself working the steps in Overeaters Anonymous. My first inventory, I sat down with my sponsor, and she's like, oh, you're a people people pleaser with low self-esteem. And I was like, what What is she talking about? No, oh, my God. Oh, my God, I'm a people pleaser with low self-esteem. I've lived my whole life doing what I thought you wanted me to do wanting desperately for you to love me and accept me and tell me I was a good girl and I was doing it the right way so much that that I, I put my myself aside. And and there's nothing nothing you can call the way I treated my body and my spirit other than abuse with food. I mean, when I got to program, I was on two antidepressants. I was on acid reflux medication. Um, I was on high blood pressure medication. I had, a, sorry guys, like a, like my pelvic floor muscles were starting to stretch and not, not hold up all my girly stuff right. And that's all a direct result of gaining and losing massive amounts of weight over and over. And, and all the medications I was on was a direct result of binge eating. And I don't have any signs and symptoms of depression right now. And... And I'm not saying that's right for everyone. I, I firmly believe that whatever help, outside help we need to get, we need to get it. And if I ever do get clinically depressed again, I plan to take whatever direction that my doctor gives me. And, um, but, like, all of those medical symptoms have been relieved. So the way that I treated my body and the way that I treated my spirit, like, I treated myself like a piece of garbage. I treated myself like I was disposable. I treated myself like I didn't deserve love and happiness and success. And through working the steps in Overeaters Anonymous, I've learned how to love myself and accept myself and treat myself with the same courtesy and and gentleness most of the time that I learned to treat all of the rest of you with a long time ago. And, um, And that's been a huge part of my recovery. The character defects that still pop up all the time... um, Self-righteousness and judgment are still in my head sometimes. You know, if I'm in fifth spiritual condition, I can meet someone and think they're a child of God doing the best they can do to get by. And if I'm not, then I think, what the hell is wrong with her? And I'm going to tell her what, you know. But the good news is is I don't use my out loud voice anymore. Um, before, Before I was introduced to the 12 steps of recovery, it was like I had Tourette's. 
Like, I would say and do anything. If he would have told me, you know, to keep the chair PG, I would have been like, sorry, baby, I can't help you. Like, I, anything I thought, I said, any, I was reactive. I was, I was insane. And, um, and I don't have to live that way today. And, um, and the low self-esteem stuff, I still have to work on all the time, too. I still have this, um, like I'm a singer and I'll, you know, reach a certain point and it's like, oh, I'm kind of comfortable here. I, you know, I don't want to, like, push this any further. Like, I get scared. And same thing with, with work right now. Like, I'm bored with my job and I could do something more challenging than the job I'm doing right now. And, and I'm like, oh, but it's kind of safe and comfortable. So, um, Holding myself back is definitely part of my disease of compulsive overeating. But I know that that's a choice, and I know that there's contrary action to, cha- to take any time I'm willing to take the next right action. And I also try to stay in the present, right here, right now. What is the next right action I need to take? Is it to call my sponsor? Is it to prepare my next healthy meal? Is it to send out that one resume to that one person that asked for it? You know, it, what is the one next right thing I need to do because part of my disease is that I want to plan the whole rest of my life right now today and then get on with it and and, you know go go be gleefully happy and it just doesn't work that way like anytime I'm trying to control and manipulate and plan everything I get insane and then as soon as I'm trying to do that in my life I'm trying to do it with my food too well maybe I need to go on a juice fast well maybe you know like insane thoughts start popping into my head and and I've, I've dieted in recovery, and I don't recommend it. Like, as soon as I try to turn the spiritual program of recovery into a diet and lock down the food and make it perfectly clean, the insanity returns. Then I'm trying to control it. So I just have to trust that whatever body I'm in today is the one that God wants me to be in. And... And I just have to trust... Lately, it's been I have to trust that I can be hungry. Like, giving up those snacks, I... I really think I'm going to die when I get hungry. I mean, it's like this heart starts racing. I'm like, oh, my God, oh, my God. I'm not going to die. I can report now that I will not die if I get hungry. But it's taken me a few months to figure that out because I never let myself get hungry before. So there's always, always more work to do. And, um, you know, making amends. I thought that I only hurt myself overeating, and I didn't realize that I was so emotionally shut down and guarded and defensive that it affected everyone around me. And God bless my ex-fiance. Like, I shut him out sexually, emotionally, all of it. And because I thought I was repulsive. Who who but an addict thinks, oh, that guy's really attracted to me. What's wrong with him? What a loser. Like, like that is what my disease tells me. And, um, and so I definitely owed him an amends. And... You know, continuing to take personal inventory in this program is is almost automatic now. Like, going to meetings, talking to my sponsor, working the steps, giving this gift away to others, and being as honest, open-minded, and willing as I can be is, is a part of just the way my day goes. And I used to revel in being like a sarcastic you know, hurtful person, and I can't believe I used to be that person. I would put people in their place, and I can't believe that I used to think, like, what? Oh, she's kind of self-conscious about her ex-husband. Maybe I'll mention him. Like, I can't believe I used to to talk to people that way and hurt people on purpose, and that's not the person that I am today. And I also 
don't harm me today. And that doesn't always work out, you know, without the help of others. I, I make a lot of phone calls, and I'm connected to a lot of women in this program. Um, prayer and meditation is hugely important in my life, and I still don't do it every day. When, when I'm asking for God's guidance, I have to get quiet. I have to get quiet. And I used to think meditation was like some transcendental, big, huge, you know, changing planes of existence. And all it means to me now is that I just have to get quiet so I can hear God's voice over all the chatter in my head. And sometimes it's uncomfortable to get quiet. Like I'll get quiet and, and I want to do things and I, I want to, oh, I need to call that person. I need to return that email. Like things start popping in my head and I just can like dismiss it and just get quiet for a few minutes. But, you know, part of being an addict, I think, is is being a petulant child too. It's kind of like, you know, going to the gym makes me feel good and I'll go for a while every day or every other day. feel And then I'm like, I don't want to do that anymore. Same thing with prayer and meditation. I'm like, oh, my God, it, it transforms my life. I feel so good when I do it. You can't make me today. And I'm like, who, like, who does that but an addict? So, so I've been trying to get back into my daily um, prayer and meditation. Um, working with others is a huge, huge part of my recovery. Um, I sponsor quite a few women right now, and they, they change my life more than I could ever hope to change their life. Giving this gift away and, and walking another member of Overeaters Anonymous through the steps is a miracle. And like to watch the light come on in someone else's eyes when they like get it and, and watch them when they're willing to like lock their abstinence in. You know, we're all afraid, but we get to do this thing together. And, and you know, to have them come and love me and support me when I'm speaking at meetings is awesome. To get to be part of people's lives like that. And um, my new sponsor is part of this meeting, and, and she's already changed my recovery. You know, she's the one that was like, well, are you hungry when, you know, are you hungry when you eat those snacks? And it's like, um, no, not, not necessarily. <laughs> do you need that snack? Yes, I need that snack. <laughs> and the truth is, is, is I don't always need that snack. Um, she got me back in the step work. She said to me, um, walking other women through the steps isn't actively working the steps yourself. You know that, right? It's like, oh. So, so I needed to get back into active step work. And, you know, I think, oh, I've got a little recovery under my belt. I, I don't need to check in every day or anything. And, and I've been checking in with her more regularly. And to feel connected to her makes me feel safe. You know what I mean? I think... My, my other sponsor, I wouldn't contact her enough. And then if I would be having an, a, 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 an obsessive food thought or get upset at work, I was like, oh, I don't want to bug her. I haven't really been talking to her all the time. Like, I need to stay connected all the time so that that channel of communication is open and the safety and the comfort is there to, to reach out to that, to that person all the time. Um, exercise, I'm trying to get back into exercise. Um, it, it's hard for me because it was such an obsession for me for a while. I was like, I'm going to be a bodybuilder and a badass, and it's going to be fantastic. Like, to find that balance, it's all self-care. Like, recovery in Overeaters Anonymous is all self-care. And part of that is taking care of my physical body. And um, exercise, like, I used to think it had to be three hours at the gym. 
Maybe it's a long walk with my dog, but my dog's getting old, so she doesn't move as fast as she used to. So maybe it's a hike with my friends. Or or maybe, you know, I have yoga tapes at home. I have um, kettlebell tapes at home. Like 30 minutes a day is what I need to keep my my heart, you know, ticking hard and, and to take good care of my body. So... Part of my disease of compulsive overeating is that all-or-nothing mentality, that black or white. Like, I'm either going to work out every day or to heck with it. Or, you know, I'm going to find my next date online. I'm going to be on Match.com 16 hours a day or to heck with it. Like that whole black and white thinking. And um, just staying in the middle of the herd helps me keep balance. Like, like with my work, I'm not feeling challenged right now. And my sponsor will say, well, why don't you show up and be present and do the best job that you can do today with the tasks that you're given? And stuff like that sounds so simplistic, but it's not always easy for someone like me. I'm still such a drama queen in my head, like that black and white thinking, like it's all or nothing, like I'm going to be single forever and I'm never going to have a better job. And I'm, You know, it's not true. That's the part of my disease of um, compulsive overeating. And... If I stay in the middle of the herd, I know that, that things are going to be okay. Um, I had to work out a lot of my childhood pain in this program. Like, I didn't realize when I got here what a wounded little spirit I was. And I spent my whole life trying to pretend that I could be a tough girl, you know, like suck it up and make it okay. And, and I'm not a tough girl. I'm a scared little girl with a very tender heart, and that's okay. And... Um, with my dad, you know, I waited my whole life for my dad's approval and, and unconditional love. And I, I had expectations of people that they weren't capable of meeting. I wanted something from him. He grew, He's a compulsive overeater, untreated himself. He grew up in a, you know, violently alcoholic home. Like, I wanted him to be this loving, nurturing person that he's not capable of being. And And through my recovery and taking a look at my side of things... And my expectations, expectations are always on my defects of character, too. I have expectations of what other I think other people need to do so I can be happy. And I have to fill myself up with God and recovery in this program to be happy. And then the other relationships kind of fall into place, and it's a bonus. Um, my dad, I started hugging him and telling him I loved him. And, you know, his whole body would tense up and... Um, and he didn't know how to receive it, but I kept giving it. And now he receives it. And now he can hug me back and kiss me back and say, I love you back. And that's because of my recovery. Like, I can't go through my life putting my happiness in other people's hands. It's not, like, I want to be a whole, complete, perfect child of God exactly the way I am, and then everything else is, is the bonus. You know what I mean? Like, being abstinent and being happy and being healthy and being present is awesome. And so if the right guy comes along, that would be amazing and that would be a bonus. If I get to, you know, an opportunity to sing on a bigger level and that comes along, that would be a bonus. If I get a bigger job that feels more creatively challenging, that would be a bonus. Like that irritable, restless, and discontent of my disease always tells me that I need to shake everything up and change everything. But I forget where I came from. Because when I got here, I couldn't bend over and tie my shoes without getting sweaty. That's the truth. My belly was in the way. I couldn't bend over and tie my shoes without breaking a sweat. And I thought, 
God, if I can just be a normal-sized person, I'll give up everything. I'll just, that's all I need. And then I got to my normal body weight and found out that that was a big, fat lie. <laughs> that's not necessarily true. On a good day when I'm spiritually fit, that's absolutely true. And I am grateful to be in a healthy body, at a healthy body weight, present in my life, and, and not harming myself. But I, I, still, I still get in my head about it. I still, you know. But that's when I knew that I, that's when I know I have other work to do, and it's not about the food. When my first sponsor said, Kim, this program is not about the food. It's a spiritual program of recovery. I was like, I don't know what she's talking about, but I'm here to lose 65 pounds. And it's not about the food. I have to look at the ism. I have to figure out the underlying causes and conditions that make me compulsively overeat. I have to look at the alcoholic foods that I need to give up because they affect my brain and my body and I can't stop eating them when I start. I, I need to give up my will and trust that God has my best, my best interest at heart. And, um, and if I do those things, I can have a happy life. And um, everything good in my life is because of recovery. Everything good about my character, all of the relationships that I have, I've really, like my family relationships are amazing today. My working relationships, I used to be such a pain to work with, and those are all good. My friendships are the most kind, loving, supportive, wonderful friendships I've ever had in my life. Dating, I'm still working on. And um, God has a sense of humor because for work I've been interviewing love and relationship experts and having them tell me why people don't get in relationships or have bad relationships or can't break up from bad relationships or can't let go and stop people on Facebook after the relationship. And I'm like, okay, God, okay. <laughs> so maybe that's what it's time for me to take a look at next. Um, I'm way more afraid of a cupcake than a cocktail today. People think I'm crazy, but I'm, I'm like, no, don't hand it to me. I, can you move that to the other end of the table? I don't want to touch it. No, I'm not going to cut your birthday cake. Like, no, I, I don't touch it because I don't want it on me. I don't want it in my hands because there's a lot greater chance if it's in my house or in my hand that I could have a, a momentary lapse of reason and eat it. So I protect my abstinence um, still four and a half years later. I, I go places that I feel safe. I eat meals. Most of the time people can eat whatever they want now, but if I'm feeling squirrely and uncomfortable, you know, I don't go for a sandwich at Porto's. That's just not a good idea. But um, I just know that I need to keep my side of the street clean. I need to pay attention to what I'm doing and what I need to change. It's never about anybody else or what they're doing. Um, I love Overeaters Anonymous. I'm grateful for my healthy mind, body, and spirit because of this program. And even more so, I'm grateful for all of you for holding my hand and loving me when I hated my own guts when I got here. Because I did. I hated myself. And today, I have a little bit of love for myself and some dignity and grace and freedom with which to live my life. And so thank you for that gift. And uh, We have a few minutes left if anybody has any questions. It is, it, yeah, so why do we hurt other people with alcohol and why do we hurt ourselves with food? Um, with me, alcoholism and food addiction are exactly the same and completely different. And it didn't make any sense to me when I got here either. I think the harming other people 
when drinking was about being so completely out of my mind and out of control, being, you know, a menace to society, basically, drinking and driving and acting out and, I mean, really doing insane and dangerous things that harmed other people. Um, the food part is, it's, it's been my dirty little secret my whole life. And um, Easter, like walking through the stores in Easter, I see all the, I used to like go to CBS and go hide in my hotel room on the road. Like that's self-harm. And that's me not dealing with what, a, what other underlying emotions I need to look at to, um, to stop that pattern of behavior. I hope that answers your question. My higher power is very different from the Judeo-Christian punishing God that I grew up with. I grew up in a fire and brimstone Pentecostal kind of church. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Oh, so what is, what is my higher power and how do I connect with him or her today? Um, my higher power is very different from the one that I grew up with. I had a very punishing God that I was afraid of when I, when I um, got here. Today, to me, um, there's one God, spirit of the universe, higher power, mother nature. Like, whatever you want to call it works for me because I think that there's one creative force, loving force, and um, it's what connects all of us to each other. It connects all of us to each other. It connects me to my dogs that I love. It connects me to nature. It connects me to everything. Like, I think that we're all part of the same substance. And how I connect is, is prayer and meditation in the morning. But even more than that is just being present with who I'm with. Where Like, I don't know about you, but I used to have conversations in my head. Like, I would... I would be talking to you, but I wouldn't be listening to you talking to me. I'd be thinking about what I was going to say back to you. Mm-hmm. Now I'm really connected with people. And um, <clears throat> and I see my higher power work in you in ways that I can't even recognize it in myself. I think that we miss the transformation we've made ourselves, but we get to see it in each other. But I, I feel connected to higher power in, in a powerful way today that I didn't before. Yeah, you know, it was hard. Oh, how do I deal with people being food pushers and that food is love thing um, out in the world? I don't, I live 1,500 miles away from my family today, so the family stuff is a little easier than it used to be. In early recovery, in early abstinence, I had to avoid the people and the places that those things happen. I mean, I have really good friends that I can hang out with now that I couldn't in early recovery because they would sit on my lap and eat that and be like, oh, this is the best blah, blah, blah I've ever had. Too bad you can't have any. I mean, and I just had to avoid those people. Today, I don't get angry about it anymore. It, it took me three and a half or four and a half years to stop getting angry that people were eating it in front of me. Like, how dare you? Like, now they can have it and it's okay. It's their food. That's the difference. It's just like a shift in, in my in my head like it's their food not my food and I can say no thank you without being angry now most of the time but if someone's really a food pusher I had a date bring me a piece of, of you know pastry like oh you said you don't eat this so look what I got you and I was like are you an idiot like it was I didn't say that but it was our last date so yeah I, I just don't put myself in dangerous food situations anyone else about that time. Okay, that's all the time I've got. Thank you.